since we're talking about the price of gas, I just wanted to throw one thing in there. There's a really good article that I read that pointed out that as a percentage of disposable income in the United States, gasoline prices right now are pretty close to the average they have been over the last 50 years. Right. In other words, gas prices aren't as high as you might think. It used to be that as a percentage of disposable income, um, they, they've actually been much higher on several occasions. So gasoline prices are not the big thing that we think they are. They're just higher than they used to be, which makes it uncomfortable. Um, and by the way, I think gas prices will come back down again. Uh, yeah, I agree. Will probably be, it'll probably be 2023 at the earliest, uh, but they'll be back down again to something far more reasonable. Once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and Jeff McClure. And hopefully that will be the only time you hear uh, 1940s radio announcer voices this episode, Why? but you, it might come back. 1940s, it was went into the 50s. Okay. It did. Uh-huh. I, I, I take your word for it. You, I remember. You were there. Yeah. I was there. Um, so uh, I, I misdecated it. Maybe I should have said the 1920s through the night or 1950s radio voice. Would that have been better? I mean, I the guess. radio okay. voice of the 1980s and 90s had more in, in line with Sunday, 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 rather than who was that masked player? Well, now I have broken my own disclosure. I said we were going to try to avoid radio announcer voices. See what I just did there. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Sunday, so, Sunday, Sunday. Right. Uh, monster trucks, stuff like that. They're right. going to be involved in that advertisement. This is the personal wealth coach, and we will be talking about more than monster trucks. I, we will? I assure you, but not in a promissory way. Right. Okay, right. Well, this is the personal wealth coach, as you said, and the personal wealth coach is not only the name of a potentially sleepy radio program, it is also our podcast, as the case may be, and it is also the name of a registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas, that is registered with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission, which neither implies, which implies in no way that they approve of our well, they approve of our existence, but that's about as far as it goes. I'm not sure that they actually approve of our existence, but they acknowledge our existence. They authorize us to exist. They they, they didn't unauthorize us. Right. They're, that's that's that is the extent. It's, if you've ever had a father figure relationship like that, that would make sense. I don't. I actually get acknowledged pretty regularly because the other guy that's talking on here is my father. Huh. Yeah. See, well, that wasn't any acknowledgement. Now I oh, that. yes. I'm, I'm I am your father. Now. Right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. yes. I've been well, I slept last night. I've slept since. <laughs> so, uh, next disclosure is that, um, let's, so, so we're registered with the SEC to give investment advice. Investment advice is fiduciary, and we can't do that on the air because we don't know all of you, and it's not private if we did. So, this is an educational radio program. We're going to hopefully give you something that you didn't know before. That's uh, sometimes a high bar and sometimes not. It uh, depends on how well you know finance. So we'll do our best. Uh, so this is an educational program. We're not going to give investment advice. 
So you won't hear us talking about whether or not you should buy an individual security of some kind. Because as I've told many, many people, uh, a, an excavator, a backhoe, is maybe the best investment ever for the right person. And maybe the worst investment ever for almost everybody else. So that's that's my that that's all I have to say about that. Uh, next disclosure, please. We do not pay for this radio program, uh, nor are we paid by KTEM to do the radio program. And if you're listening to a podcast, that's an irrelevancy. Uh, we do advertise on KTEM for the radio program, but then KTEM also advertises on KTEM for the radio program. You know, there's a lot of like dried up seas out there that are no longer seas. Those are ir- irrelevancies too. I just wanted you to know that. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. Okay. I'm you already so. starting the bad puns. We're, we're on a roll. Irrelevant seas. Yeah. Yeah. I could argue that with you, but we need to get the disclosures out. Yes. Um, you want to say this, this is last an, it, one. You, I, yeah, if this, I, we did it in kind of a different order than usual, but if I do the next one, you're going to be frustrated for the rest of the day that you didn't get to no, say no, it. No, no, no. Yes, yes. So, so go ahead. This is, as, as Jake said, this is an educational radio program and not investment advice. And on this educational radio program, we have obtained information that we're going to talk about. The information that we present has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable. However, we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. By the way, nobody requires us to give that disclosure except him. He really likes saying it. Um, there's, there's not a legal, the SEC doesn't tell us that we have to tell you that, that we deem the information to be valid because they would assume that we would deem that so. <laughs> but he likes to not give warranties or guarantees about well deem yes and he likes to deem so get your deem, deem. go go for it uh well i like to get my per diem per anyway demon the market yeah. we moved to the market from here to the market what happened this week it was a interesting week in the stock market because we had the first half end on Thursday, the first half of 2022. So you can, so our statistical measurements are normally by the week and on this program, but we also need to mention the half and also the quarter. Well, yeah, we could, I didn't pay much attention to the quarter. The half is bigger than the quarter. Okay. So we're, we're at four bits instead of two bits, four bits, six bits, a dollar. We're at the four bits point. Yes. Yes. Four bits is a half. Anyway, the, um, the index was down 2.21% for the week to in the S&P 500 index to 3825.33. Um, it closed at 3818.83 on the last day of the second quarter. That means during the first quarter so far, during the, I'm sorry, during the third quarter so far, the index is up 1.06%. Oh, that sounds amazing. This is the, the highest rise in the first quarter that we've seen since the last time it rose this high. Yeah. Right. So there's some kind of a record there. Usually you see it within the last year. If you read the headlines recently, this is the greatest move since two months ago. Really, really important stuff. Okay, go ahead. Well, it's down. The the S&P 500 was down just over 20% in the first half, um, which is not as low as it got because it actually came up a little bit from last because of last week. But that is as the financial media is parking and crowing and barking about that is the worst first first half to a calendar year since 1970 and 
it is one of only two. It's, it's one of the three worst since World War II in the first half of the year, which has no relevance whatsoever. Uh, but it's but it's a nice thing to say. I mean, this is the only time this has happened since this other time that it happened. That's the way headlines need to work to give people. Right. Oh, really? Oh, really? Uh, did you know uh, that this is the last time that we have had, or, or the first time that we've had a Saturday that was the the second of July in several years at least? Right. Yeah, that's true. And, and this is record breaking information, but folks. If we're going to since since the media, uh, the the financial news media, particularly the Wall Street Journal and so on, made a big deal out of this, we should look at that very carefully. Okay, so three times since World War II, we've had a twenty percent or greater decline in the first half of the year. So that obviously is significant, or they wouldn't be making so much noise about it. So let's look and see what happened in the second half of the year in those in, previous two episodes. In those examples, yes, this is good stuff because if there's any relation at all, which we're not claiming, it's just kind of rhyming in a weird way. Right, they're, they're all down the same amount in these time periods. And what happened in the second half of the year? The market was much higher at the end of the year than it was at this point in the year. And each of those cases. As a matter of fact, anytime we have seen this great a decline, six months later, the market has been higher since World War II. Now, is that any guarantee? Past performance? No guarantee of future returns. Share prices may be higher or lower when purchased than when sold. Yes. So what we're saying is that, you know, when people come out and they say it's different time, this time and, and everybody points at them and says, they always say that and it's always the same. Well, it is always the same and it is always different this time. It really is because it's a different era. It's different stocks that are behaving in a certain way. But people tend not to keep a market oversold for too long. And the reverse is true as well. They came, they, I mean, it could last years, but people tend to not keep a market overbought for too long as well. It, we can, that's why we have ups and downs in the market. So anyway, go so back to the market. I'm, I'm going we also, on my philosophy here. We track another index, um, the CRSP mid-cap value index, because the S&P 500 tends to be dominated by very, very large companies, generally growth companies driving the performance, um, large growth companies. So if we go to mid-cap value companies, we're kind of going to the opposite extreme. You can say, why not small caps? Well, small caps are not in the S&P 500. <laughs> so it declined point. The, the CRSP mid-cap value index uh, dropped 0.57% for the week and is down 12.83 year-to-date and is 7.49% where it was last year at this time. Closed at 2266.01, which means that over the last year and so far this year, it has outperformed substantially the S&P 500 by dropping less. It's, it's cold comfort, but it's working. Um, the yield on the U.S. 10-year Treasury note ended at 2.894%, which if you're not following it, sounds okay. We do, do, what's that mean? Well, it was up above three. It actually got to 3.5% a couple of weeks ago, which means it's down quite a lot. It's, it's 8% lower than it was last week, the yield. Uh, it's 1.5 points higher than it was last year at this time, which means it's way up compared to where it was last year at this time. But it's, it's dropping. Uh, which is an interesting thing in light of the inflation information, which we'll talk about later. The whoa, but the, sounds like you're freestyle rapping there. Inflation information, well, or at yeah, least at, the, at, the, the, at the same okay. quality rap as a ninth grade school teacher in the 1990s. Right. So we're That's good right. at that. 
Go ahead. The uh, the and we'll talk about that a little later. But inflation is beginning to show signs of tailing off and reducing. Uh, if we look at it from one year ago, the Bloomberg Treasury Total Return Index. Now, this is this is an important thing. That the most secure place in, that known to humanity and securities that you could put money is in U.S. Treasuries. It is down ten percent so far this year. It's actually down a lot more if you count from. Uh, last fall, it's down about 14%. Um, so one of the things that's that's very significant about this market, there has been a myth for many years, uh, for about 40 years, as a matter of fact, that if you mix stocks and bonds, you would get a less volatile portfolio and you're, because your bonds would tend to go up when stocks go down and stocks uh, when, when, when stocks went up, bonds went down. That has not happened this time. The S&P 500 is down a bunch, obviously, uh, just under 20%. The most secure bond portfolio that you could assemble is down about 14%. If you went with corporate bonds, you're down as much as the S&P 500. So, this is, so if, if for those of you that wish to impress your, your easily impressed friends, the word for this in academia, in finance circles is they're showing positive correlation, the bond market and the stock market. Yep. And that will so, make people not understand you, but then probably ask you what the heck you're talking about. And it's easy then to say that they're both going down fast at the same time. Yep. So it's, it's kind of a, it's an educational point for a lot of people. The famous 60-40 portfolio, the mixing of stocks and bonds, ensuring that you would have a less less volatile return. I'm not sure famous is the right word for it. I don't think this is one that is talked about in the tabloids much, but maybe. Maybe famous. It's well known, the 60-40. Yes. Well, it's been well published in a lot of books and so on. Right. Um, Anyway. It doesn't work that well. So, but the treasury yield curve, which we watch pretty carefully, is still positive, and that's very important. The thirty-year bond, thirty-year treasury bond, is yielding three point one one seven percent, and if you recall, the two point eight nine four for the ten-year, and then you come down to two years, it's two point eight three seven percent. That doesn't sound like a lot of difference, but it's pretty critical that it, even though it's it, the difference between the two-year and the thirty-year is not huge, it is positive towards the 30-year end. And historically, that has indicated that the economy will probably do better in the future and not worse. There's still a distinct possibility we could get a recession. We're going to talk a little more about that. But if we got one, what the Treasury yield curve is saying, it will be very mild. Now, that could change. It does six to 18 months forecast pretty accurately through history. So that's where that is. West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil uh, is at 108.42%. $108.42 a barrel, which is up less than 1% for the week. Uh, interestingly enough, the price of oil moving around doesn't affect the price of gasoline very much because the issue that we're having that's causing the price of gasoline and diesel to be so high is refinery capability. And during the uh, pandemic, a lot of refineries were shut down. Uh, some were converted to doing something else like post-processing biodiesel. Uh, others, went, they decided to put them on a big maintenance schedule because the price of oil and gasoline was very, very low and people weren't burning very much gasoline. And now, the for some reason, I can't imagine why, 
the oil companies and individual investors are hesitant to sink large amounts of money into building and uh, refurbishing and converting refineries on a 30-year, because it takes about 30 years to recover their money with any reasonable uh, return in light of the fact that we're probably not going to be burning that much gasoline 10 years from now. I don't know why. They, yeah. they are not willing to ramp up gasoline production and right now. What, what I told you last, what the, the whole listening audience last week about the CEO of Exxon saying that, um, that by 2035, he expected the vast majority of, of vehicles to be electric. And by 2040, 100% of passenger vehicles will be electric. And the debt to, re, to build refining capacity for gasoline stretches over a 30-year period. And if you look ahead, it's not 30 years to the point where they're probably not going to be able to sell very much gasoline. So, yeah. yeah, they're making good decisions. It's just difficult for us right now looking at it when you see these these skyrocketing profitability. You know, I see the headlines of oil and gas company profits skyrocket, and then I see a Twitter or a Facebook or Instagram where they're talking about Oh, this, this is price gouging. The oil companies are squeezing us for all this work. They should just increase capacity. And well, well, the problem, one of the problems they have, and, and obviously there's, there's different problems and there's plenty of problems to go around, is Russia's petroleum exports are no longer being accepted. Right. And they have a lot of refineries. Yep. And we're not accepting gas and, and diesel from their refineries. Um, so that's cut a lot of it, cut us, cut a lot of supply out of this. By the way, somebody is building refineries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is correct. And it's going to be about a year before it comes in. The Saudis are building refineries like there's no tomorrow. Uh, and in some cases they may be correct. Um, there, there may not be a tomorrow for some people. That is correct. So sometime in 2023 is the best estimate that I've read so far for when gasoline prices will start to come back down again. Now, uh, I, I need to interject something here because this concept, the conversation about electric and batteries and gasoline is somewhat political. Uh, it is? Yeah. And, and it's baffling to me to see this as a political thing. It's purely economics. It's how much does it cost to run a car on electricity versus on gasoline? What's, what is the transition point where you would say this makes sense? And we've already kind of passed over that in areas where the electric vehicles already exist. The lifetime cost of that vehicle is lower than internal combustion. There's a lot fewer parts to repair and so on. And this isn't me being an evangelist. I've got a gas-guzzling car. I drive what I drive. But when there's a new technology that's cheaper and by just about every account cooler... That's the, the psychological thought process of, hey, would you like to buy an electric vehicle? There's, there's, it doesn't matter if you're talking to a grandma or a 20-year-old. There's a, an attraction. Oh, I could get an electric. So that's a change in the market. And if the oil companies, these, the gas companies more likely, because they're not synonymous all the time, the, the people that are selling gas... If they decide, hey, the prices are up right now, let's spend a whole bunch of money so we can make more gas, they're really hurting themselves because this may be one of the last times that they have this level of profitability selling gas. And if I could, if I could draw a parallel that I've been thinking about and that you're familiar with, 
A hundred years ago, one of the largest companies in the United States, one of the most stable companies in the United States, and one of the most productive corporations, member member of the Dow Jones Industrial Average, was U.S. Leather. Yeah, it was the number one energy transmission company on the planet. Energy transmission? Leather? Huh? Because that's leather belts or what were used to transmit energy from one place to another in a factory. Steam engines Uh, with wheels were turned with belts made of leather. mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of people 100 years ago, this is hard to imagine, uh, but it's real. A very large number of people, particularly on farms, were still using horses to propel their vehicles around, and the horses pulled things via leather straps. Both the brakes and the accelerator was made of leather in these vehicles. So the vehicles, 100 years ago, at the beginning of the 1920s, were still largely powered by leather. And leather, the leather was getting expensive because there was actually a shortage of leather at this point 100 years ago, believe it or not. There was also a a shortage of uh, clam and oyster shells. So there was expected to be an extremely high increase in the price of clothing because that's what buttons were made out of. There's a big article on our bathroom yes, wall. Yes, I know. This. It's great. So you combine <laughs> that was this. 1908. Right. So this is a little over 100 years ago. And something happened right then that changed the world. <laughs> U.S. Leather is, is no longer one of the great companies on yeah. the planet. And if you talk about an oyster shell button, you're probably in an antique store. As a matter of fact, U.S. Leather is one of two companies that I know of that was in the Dow Jones Industrial Average and a decade or so later had ceased to exist. Nobody bought it. Its share price became absolutely worthless and it just went away. Montgomery and, Wards was one of them and right. the other one was U.S. Leather. And at and, and no point during this time period, just as a side note, did a bunch of people get together and say, man, I just don't like leather anymore. Nobody got together and said, man, I just really prefer these other kind of buttons to oysters and clamps. The price spoke, and then the habits changed. That's how technology works. We didn't move away from coal to natural gas because coal is dirty. I mean, you can claim that if you want to feel good about it, but we moved because natural gas was cheaper. It also happens to be cleaner. So when those combined, that's a, that's a win-win, and people can all get involved and go, oh, this is much better. But then at some point, some other technology will come along that becomes cheaper and cleaner, and that's what we'll use. That's, this is the progression, and a lot of times throughout history, I mean, this is the nature of what a lot of our folk tales are about. John Henry was a steel-driving man, um, and he could drive that steel, and but... Machines could do it faster. That's what that whole story is about. It's constant, and it goes all the way through our history. Um, it, it, it's interesting that the Teamsters Union were literally Teamsters 100 years ago when we're talking about U.S. leather. They were the ones that could drive a team of six or eight or 12 horses without over-damaging and then they got switched over to driving trucks. Now they're still Teamsters, but there's no team. What happens when the trucks are driving themselves? Well, the Teamsters will probably become stay as a union, unionizing some other area. They've already begun that process. So what we begin as, whether it's technology or bureaucracy, 
tends to change with the times. That's what we're saying about gasoline is that gasoline prices being high right now is a, is a greater push on electric research because nobody wants to buy a gas guzzler right now. They're looking for something that isn't so expensive to drive. This pushes electricity. Uh, it's just, that's the nature of technology. Anyway, we're, I'm babbling on and I'm not even sure we're through talking about the market yet. We've got questions waiting and we're talking about finance instead of answering questions about finance. It's horrible. Since we're talking about the price of gas, I just wanted to throw one thing in there. There's a really good article that I read that pointed out that as a percentage of disposable income in the United States, gasoline prices right now are pretty close to the average they have been over the last 50 years. Right. In other words, gas prices aren't as high as you might think. It used to be that as a percentage of disposable income, um, they, they've actually been much higher on several occasions. So gasoline prices are not the big thing that we think they are. They're just higher than they used to be, which makes it uncomfortable. Um, and by the way, I think gas prices will come back down again. Uh, yeah, I agree. Will probably be, it'll probably be 2023 at the earliest, uh, but they'll be back down again to something far more reasonable because I've just seen this boom and bust. It's, it's like, it's very much like real estate. We're in the tail end of a real estate boom right now. Although I read some interesting articles on that, by the way, talking about markets. Uh, there are places around the country already where realtors are having to lower the price of houses 15% to sell them. Anyway, so we're done. We're done with the market. All right. Um, I have a real quick jump into the crypto world. Uh, I'm sure you have some stuff to talk about too. It won't, this one won't take a whole lot of t time. I have gotten some questions on why the drop went from bad to suddenly catastrophic on crypto. Oh, I can. And the thing that I can point out that's the easiest thing is something called, I'm going to use a really big word and then explain it because it's a word that's I think should be either renamed or understood better. Rehypothecation. What is that? Well, a lot of the crypto sort of banks, they didn't have money, they had crypto as their deposits, would say, you can come here, deposit your assets with us, say you're going to leave it with us in this contract, it's called staking there, or you're going to stake this money, and we will pay you an interest rate, and those interest rates were generally extremely high, 12 to 18%. That's way more you can get from a bank, they would say. And so they would stake this asset and would get some money for, for it. Then they would loan the, the firm that's saying you stake it with us. They would turn and loan that crypto to someone else so that they could short sell it or they could uh, use it to buy something with or they could invest in a different cryptocurrency with it. Or even in the same one. Right. So then they would get this loan of the cryptocurrency. Well, in order to do to get that loan in one crypto, they would also have to stake their assets in a different crypto. So they would drop that down as a deposit at this industry firm. That industry firm at the crypto level would then take that money that was put on as collateral against a loan and loan it out. When you make collateral, that's called hypothecating. You're putting money down. If you stake it and you say, I can't touch this CD at the bank, I'm going to get a car loan. 
and it's going to be a lower interest because I've got this money at the bank. If the bank then uses that money to make a loan, as well as the loan they made to you, that's really dangerous, and it's what brought down Lehman Brothers. So we've got a whole series of securities laws that prevent rehypothecation in a lot of areas. But this whole thing about crypto being a security and how a lot of the crypto folks are saying we want it to be a security, we want an ETF, it would if we applied securities laws to it, a lot of the loaning that's taken place that caused this big boom in crypto assets could not have happened because it's against securities law. Anyway, when one of those loans fails and the collateral is used as a loan to something else, you can see the dominoes go fast. One loan fails causes the next loan fail because that collateral that was used against the other loan is actually having to be used to pay off the other other loan and so on. Um, that's what's happening right now in the crypto world. When they say we're freezing the assets, you can't buy or sell, it's because they don't know who owns it. If it's been collateralized multiple times, it's like a re-re-re-hypothecation. And now we're back to what happened in the mortgage-backed securities market in the Great Recession. Years ago, when I had a TV show, I interviewed a business owner who admitted to me something that was pretty fascinating. Now, he was very elderly at the time. So when we're talking about way back, we're talking about before banking regulation as we know it today. Right. He went to the bank and borrowed money to buy a business. Uh-huh. Then he went to another bank and borrowed money to buy the same business. And both of them thought they had the business as collateral. Right. And then he went to a third bank to borrow money to buy the business. And they thought they had the business as collateral because there were, the regulation was very weak at the time. That that not in regulation of where the collateral, in other words, basically he was borrowing and he, he borrowed money, had money on deposit because he just borrowed the money. So they looked at his banking statement. He had lots of money, lots of cash available, and he had a business he's buying with it. And he has lots of cash. So they thought, shoot, this is a, this is a completely stable place to loan our money. And then he had more cash. So he went to the third bank and the third bank, he had double the cash in his bank account because he just borrowed money twice to buy the same business. And by the third bank, he had plenty of money to buy the business. And of course, now the payments were a different issue. And he was working day and night to make that work. And it worked. Now, this is an interesting. Why we why do I bring that up? That's exactly what's been going on with cryptocurrency because it's in an unregulated market. And that type of behavior that we're talking about from this business owner, because he was old enough to talk about this, is what we call 1930s. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's <laughs> so a, the banking collapse of the 1930s is people were doing that all over the place. There's another survey that's just come out that says that um, the ownership of crypto, this is from Bank of America, I believe. I'll have to look this up. Uh, ownership by U.S. households of crypto, cryptocurrencies is down 50% from this time last year. That says something about the goal of crypto as a currency, the the idea is that it will become mainstream at some point. Well, no, it won't. The volatility is too much and mainstream is recognizing you can't use this as something to buy with if it has this kind of volatility and this lack of regulation. The back and forth that the crypto world is having with the SEC over whether or not they're a security and one part says, hey, we are definitely a security. We want to be an ETF. We want to be available on Wall Street. We want people to be able to buy and sell us on the market. Um, and the other half saying, no, we're not. Uh, we don't need your regulation. Go away, SEC. Don't call us a security. 
And that is the sometimes the same crypto company telling the SEC, please let us be a security and telling the SEC, don't regulate us, we're not a security. That won't work. <laughs> as long as the business model is built on the greater fool theory that the only reason that I will make a profit here is that this will be worth more money in the future because someone else later on will want to pay more for it in the future. There's no underlying value creation as long as the only reason people are buying it is because they expect to sell it at a great profit in the future. If you buy a company that's trying to make money, you generally, you can buy it saying, I want to sell this for a profit in the future. But you would only buy it if you're a good business owner owner to somehow improve its business, to make it more profitable so that you can get that income and then eventually sell it at a greater value. If you don't have something that you're profitable selling, then it makes it hard to understand why someone would buy it for from you for more money in the future. And gold is another example of that. And I'll hand this over to you right after this gold is significantly down this year as well. It has not been a hedge against inflation. It has not been a hedge against the market, either the bond or the stock market. And that is more definition of why in, in a panic, which is what's going on in a big chunk of the market right now, the statement is all correlations go to one. If you're trying to sell your assets because you need money, it doesn't matter if it's gold or if it's bonds or if it's stocks. If you're scared and you're selling, you sell what you have. Now, that's not a great idea, but that's what drives the market in a lot of cases. So I know you've got more to say, and I want to give you some time to say it before the end of the hour. Well, this is actually dredged forward from last week, but it's very important. The Social Security Trustees Report, the 2022 Trustees Report, is a, if you're at all interested in economics, is a great read. Uh, Social Security's Financial Outlook, the 2022 Update in Perspective, you can center for research. For retirement research at Boston College. Here's the bottom line. Around 2035, the Social Security Trust Fund will go to zero. It's projected, predicted to go to zero. It bumped up from 2034 to 2035, but it's, a, it's going to be in that area. It's important to recognize that something is going to happen at that point. Either the Social Security taxes are going to be raised rather substantially. Actually, they could be raised just a little bit right now, and we would solve the problem. However, I knowing Congress and tax raising, I seriously doubt they're going to do it. The Congress is either going to borrow a lot of money during what during when we're probably going to be in a severe recession, if my estimate of history is correct, which I don't think they're going to do, or they're going to lower Social Security payments, which is probably the most likely thing, and cut them off for people above a certain income level. Why is that important? Shoot, that is 2035. That's a long time in the future. Yeah, well, I hate to break this to you, but it's only 13 years from now. If you're an investor at this point planning on retiring in the future and you do your handy dandy calculations using the software that's available out there, you say Social Security will equal this much of my income at that point, cut 20% off of that. Just assume that Congress won't do anything. And maybe they will, maybe they won't, but presume Congress won't do anything. What will happen if Congress does nothing? Social Security payments will drop by about 20% and stay down. That's what will happen. It's important for people who are investing for retirement or people who intend to be alive 13 years from now who are drawing Social Security to be aware that they that Social Security will keep up with inflation very nicely between now and then in all likelihood because, by the way, 
the Social Security tax rises with people's incomes. Therefore, it keeps up with inflation too. But what will probably happen is a 20% cut in Social Security pretty much across the board, maybe more for upper income people. It's important in doing, if you're doing retirement calculations right now, to recognize that you should not depend as much on Social Security after 2035 as the projections say you should today. I know that sounds like a minor blip or something like this, but I've been at this long enough to remember 15 years ago. I, you know, 15 years ago wasn't that long. In fact, uh, I, I was just looking at this. 15 years ago was the Great 2007. Recession. That yeah. wasn't that long ago. 15 years from now, Social Security Trust Fund will run out of money. And at that point, Congress is not obligated under any law to continue at the same level of Social Security. Automatically, it goes to a 20% drop in Social Security across the board. Very well, maybe that's exactly what will happen. But the point that I want to make, and I think this is a very, very important point at this time, is if you're doing retirement planning and you intend to be retired at that point and drawing on your personal portfolio as well as Social Security, you should be planning to have more in your personal portfolio. So you need to be investing more today. And there's more to that by far, but we're out of time. Yeah. If you would like to talk to us off the air, the local number is 947-1111 or 1-800-914-7526. Please go to our webpage, The Personal Wealth Coach or tpwc.com. Newsletters, emails, contact, all that good stuff. Until next week, thanks for listening.